Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Garasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, losing the long-fought campaign against putting up blinds <laughs> in my apartment. And I'm Cameron Lalana, having spent most of this week uh, sailing the seven seas with Matt as we <laughs> spend all our free time in Sea of Thieves. But, you know, it's been good. We've only been getting griefed constantly. It's, it's lovely. Good relaxing <laughs> times. <laughs> it's really relaxing to embark on a mission and then get sunk by other players who've been pursuing us for 10 minutes who then take all of our stuff and put us back at square one it's great but at least i have the the new pirates of the caribbean uh cosmetics (laughs) well worth all of my free money (laughs) (laughs) well this is a podcast where me and my good pal cameron get to unwind from our week with some russian literature and a drink or two this week we're going to be continuing our summer of anna karenina series with part five we are over halfway there now we're making our way through it one thick chapter at a time (laughs) (laughs) and yet somehow with the other two parts where very little happened we've managed to tolstoy managed to put all the events that could have gone over three parts into just part five so it's gonna be a thick episode but a fun one lots to talk about so much so much Uh, this week we also continue to be eternally grateful to all of our patrons if you're interested in helping out the show, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. We are going to be working on some new Patreon-only content soon-ish, uh, and new rewards as well. So it really helps the show out. That's probably the, the, the biggest and most consistent way you could help the show out if you are interested. If you're not interested in Patreon but would prefer to support us in a more free way, you can leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts or sign up for our email list on our website. Yes, thank you for all the updates. But before we get into the reading today, Matt, what are you drinking? I'm drinking drinking a little something tonight. A little something. Got it out of a Ooh, variety okay. pack, but oh. it's, it's still pretty good. Uh, I got a variety pack of Goose Island uh, beers, which I think is... I've seen Goose Island basically everywhere I've been, but it is actually a Chicago brewery. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm drinking huh, okay. an, an IPA called Dank Detector, which is <laughs> <laughs> really funny. It actually really good IPA. Gotta say, is very flavorful. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's very fun. It's, it's dank, and I've detected it. You've detected the dankness. <laughs> I have. Uh, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I am drinking. Uh, Strange Beast Hard Kombucha, uh, which is, of course, as they note on top, a natural and organic, which is exactly what I'm looking for in my alcoholic kombucha. I think you can just say you live in California. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I hate that I actually enjoy alcoholic kombucha, but (laughs) here we are drinking ginger, lemon, and hibiscus. Uh, which I chose because ginger and lemon is my usual flavor go-to for kombucha anyway. Okay. I hate that I said that. I hate who I am. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to hate on it because hibiscus, probably one of my my new favorite flavors. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm glad we're on the same page about hibiscus. It's just really good. I've had it in, you know, I also hate who I am. I've had it in beer, sparkling water, <laughs> anything you could have it in, I've, I've had it. It's good. All right. That's fair. I, I didn't realize we're studying the hibiscus fan club, but here we are. Uh, it's going to be our new spinoff podcast, probably. <laughs> hibiscus homeboys. <laughs> no, wait. Hibiscus Halebnikov. Ooh, there you go. Sorry, I was thinking, I was trying to see if I could top that, but I couldn't. Let's just <laughs> let's just do the normal podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah, if we have to, I guess. <laughs> so let's talk about part five of Anna Karenina. As always, we'll be going through the events of this part which like i said before is it's just there are a lot of events in this part i kept expecting it us to get to the part where they just faff about for 50 pages but um that doesn't really happen just things just happen development occurs characters change i kind of actually kind of like it though if we're gonna just talk vaguely about the structure because i actually think this it's, it's a more of a realistic structure if you think about it because if you just had kind of straight development you would be more aware that you were reading a book, I think. I mean, obviously you're aware that you're reading a book because right. you're reading it, but it kind of mirrors the way real life works, which is like not every day does something happen quite frequently. Well, at least in my life, nothing happens for several days straight. Uh, <laughs> and then it seems like everything happens all at once. So I don't know. That's why I kind of like this because it kind of feels like in a way everything was leading to this, but also in a way 
It definitely wasn't. Yeah, it's definitely. I, 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 this part also made me reflect on the nature of novel writing too, but we'll get to that eventually. So, part five, we enter with the the month or so uh, before Levin and Kitty's wedding. In this entire month and a half, Levin does very little. He's he's still kind of in that above the clouds mentality, which means he can't do anything. <laughs> he's just completely useless. Uh, all the planning is left up to the Shabatsky, Shabatsky's more or less. <laughs> To the extent that uh, Levin contributes, it's through his his brother and through Steva, who are more or less taking care of his affairs at this point, because he's just too up in the clouds to really worry about his wedding too much. Uh, his his main trouble is getting uh, is getting communion, because obviously you can't get married without having received communion. Um, uh, Levin, as you might imagine, has not gotten communion in many years, and when he goes to get it from the priest and confesses sins, he can't help but tell the priest he he doesn't believe in religion really, and that's there's a god, to which the priest kind of <laughs> just hurries him past and, and gives him the communion anyway after a kind of a boilerplate response. So I have to imagine he probably just didn't want to deal with that. For me, this was just like one of those parts where Tolstoy was just inserting himself <laughs> into the character a little bit. Oh, 5,000%. <laughs> uh, so it all leads up to the the, the big day where, um, of course, Levin and Kitty, according to the old tradition, are not supposed to see each other. But Levin is, he gets into a mood, so he has to, <laughs> he runs to Kitty to tell her that he's suffering and can't bear to suffer alone. So she has to tell him that, of course, yes, I love you. And Kitty's mother is like, why are you here bothering my daughter on the day that you're not supposed to see her? And sends him away. But... <laughs> 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 most sane person at that moment <laughs> I know. and so later in the day they have a huge wedding it's going to be in a church obviously and they've got many relatives people they happen to know in society people who they don't know in society people who just happen to see that something was happening and wandered into the church why would you go to a wedding just for fun if they aren't even going to give you food you're just Going there to watch someone you don't know get married for no benefit. And you have to stand the whole time. And you have to stand the whole time. Yeah. And you're going to be suffocated by incense the whole time. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of marks against it, but this entire book seems to prove that it's really hard to find good entertainment <laughs> this time. So <laughs> I think it's just like, you know, like, I just think that's maybe what you did in the 19th century. If you were kind of just a, a peasant or somebody who might be meandering about. If there was just a lot of hustle and bustle around the church, maybe just kind of peek on in and see what's going on. <laughs> and once you've entered, you obviously can't leave because that would mark you as someone who wasn't supposed to be there. So you just... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, could you go to the wrong class in the first day of a quarter? <laughs> You're now enrolled in that class. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Levin and Kitty, of course, are half an hour or more late to their own wedding uh, because Levin, his shirt isn't properly pressed. So the the... Getting a shirt on Sunday is apparently no small matter, so they, they come very late, and it causes some amount of consternation among the crowd, which uh, it consumes Levin at first. As they begin the ceremony, he can't help but think about what everyone thinks. He's worried about himself. He feels weird, and as the, the priest begins the kind of sermon, and the crowns are being held over their head, which is another tradition, if you watch the 60... I can't remember what exact year the 60s version, Soviet version of Anna Karenina came out. I think they represented what that would look like, what the, what that would look like very well, which is surprising given the USSR's attitude towards religion. But well, religion and film—it's fake religion at that point, I guess. <laughs> that's that's fair. So up to the point when the priest gives the whole sermon, Levin is just suffering. He feels terrible, and he's like, "How could how could Kitty possibly want to marry me?" And, and it's not until they finally come up to the to the very end where he's able to feel any way, like feel good about this uh, as they're kind of they need to trade rings, which uh, no one really prepared them very well because they don't know what's going on. So they have to keep getting shuffled like, no, 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 you're not supposed to when we give you the ring, you're supposed to put it on each other or yourselves or no, you don't give it back to the priest, which you'd think someone would have told them about that beforehand. But then again, the last time I was at a funeral, I found out I was a pallbearer uh, about five seconds before someone expected me to carry the coffin. So maybe that's actually constant through time. Well, also, but like, look at who he's surrounded by. Who is going to tell him anything? <laughs> Steva? <laughs> <laughs> uh, fair point. Well, you think someone in Kitty's family would have <laughs> probably given her a heads up? Well, that's yeah, that's actually true. Kitty's family is. Yeah. 
Yeah. So after some amount of difficulty, which causes, you know, obviously some consternation between the two and Levin just keeps thinking about it. It all leads up to the exchange of rings and the final blessing by the priest. And suddenly all of Levin's, he says, or he thinks all his ideas about marriage, all his dreams about how he would arrange his life. He realized that they were mere childishness and that it was something he had never understood and now understood less than ever, though it was happening to him, which is going to be a theme in the coming months. We kind of go out of Levin's view. We see other people at the wedding. And of course, because it's a lot of not very close relatives or people they know in society, people are just kind of gossiping it up in the back of the church about what people are wearing and what they think of this union and whether or not uh, Levin is worth uh, even one finger on Kitty's hand, et cetera, et cetera. Fun wedding conversations. Of course. Immediately after the ceremony is over, Kitty and Levin just go to the country. Levin initially wanted to spend their honeymoon abroad, but Kitty uh, insists that they go to Levin's estate in the country and they begin to understand what, what country life is like. For the next three months or so, they... Oh, sorry. That's later. Doesn't that? Wouldn't that kind of suck, though? I mean, what going abroad or going? Nah, like going, I, you know, I get it. I get it. I get it. We're gonna talk about it later. Why do they skip their honeymoon and instead just go back to life? <laughs> it'll it'll be this will make an interesting discussion point later. But ooh, man, if you're getting married to somebody that wealthy, like take me abroad. <laughs> <laughs> just you can you'll have time for the country estate later. Kitty's like 19, I think, maybe 20. Levin's, well, older. But. Well, to be fair, I guess they'll always have time to travel, too, because they are both extremely wealthy and have literally nothing to do this whole book. That. Except <laughs> pine over each other for four parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair point. Well, as we will discover in what they spend the next couple of months at this country state doing, they probably weren't going to miss out on anything. So as the, as the two depart to their honeymoon in the country, we rejoin Vronsky and Anna, who've been traveling for the last three months around Europe, going to uh, various places around Italy, uh, Venice, Rome, Naples, all those places, before they finally come to rest uh, in a small Italian town where they decide to stay for some time. And while there, they happen to meet a former comrade of, uh, of Vronsky's, who Vronsky is not all that close to anymore, but because they're both kind of out of their element they end up being friends and they spend the, the the next while that they spend in this town always basically kind of as a threesome hanging out together this is kind of a weird time for the two of them Vronsky's taken up painting because he's kind of given up his whole career more or less i'm not entirely certain about how you just drop your job and leave and go abroad for months on at a time but you know i, I guess i don't understand russian nobility well he turned on the posting in tashkent originally and then i think he I think he kind of just left it to go hang out with Anna, basically. <laughs> uh, God, I wish I could do that with my jobs. Yeah, well, I guess I guess you would just have to inherit a really large family <laughs> fortune first. <laughs> that that is the kicker. That's a hard one for me. So if you could figure out how to do that, just uh, let me know. I would be much appreciative. Yeah, I will. I will absolutely let you wait on that. <laughs> if I if I learn the secrets of how to get a wealthy family member. <laughs> So while they're out here, they, they happen to visit an artist and they have they spend a lot of time with this artist as this artist paints Anna and they debate about art and what it means and their relationships and that lasts for like a good 30 pages and we don't necessarily need to get into that. But they spend a lot of time talking about it and they all leave kind of dissatisfied. The most important thing to note is that uh, whereas Anna spends this period feeling relatively good considering... Well, all things considered, uh, that she survived, that she's got her daughter, that she's just not thinking about what all happened with Alexei and all that in, in Russia. And she's thinking about how much she loves Vronsky. Vronsky, on the other hand, is feeling pretty bad. He he thought that he would feel great after they went abroad, and he's like, I, all I need is love. But turns out Vronsky um, needs, he wants more than just love, and he's feeling very dissatisfied. Very much his hobbies. As I mentioned, he took a painting. This is kind of a way for him to express himself because he no longer has his, his job as a military officer. He's not looking forward to a promotion. He, he just doesn't have anything to do. Um, and whereas Anna, I guess, is used to that through, you know, having to spend years as a society lady where you don't really do that much. Uh, Vronsky is feeling, Vronsky is feeling, feeling pretty out about it. They decide to go back to Russia. They, they need to attend to Vronsky's family estate. Uh, and, and Anna really wants to see her son. In this period we also rejoin levin and kitty who are 
have just spent three months out in the country and they, as Tolstoy notes, they're happy. Not entirely in the way they expected to be, though. Many of their former dreams, it turns out, are not the realities of how their lives have turned out. Um, but they, they found new happiness. They found happiness in things they wouldn't didn't entirely expect to find happiness in. Even outside of them as characters, it's... I mean, they're two people who don't know each other all that well, frankly, who are now uh, intertwined. It's like it, it, doing it in everything, in, in living, in future, all that. So when they talk about all the fighting they do over the course of that three months, um, it's pretty... Although um, Levin, of course, is trying to intellectualize it and and spends a lot of this chapter talking about the difficulties of understanding where he stopped and she began because they're melding into one organism. Also, they're just two people who are not exactly strangers, but, you know, are suddenly having to learning how to cohabitate, which is not as exciting an explanation as five pages of thinking about what it means to be oneself and what it means to be in a relationship. But it's, it's a really realistic, I guess. Oh, Levin. <laughs> oh, Levin. <laughs> they're, they're really just learning how to cohabitate. They're spending a lot of time together, and, and they really aren't getting that much done. Uh, Kitty is trying to kind of take her place in the household and, and learn to give orders, but people are kind of looking at her as kind of a weird outsider, and although they do like her, they don't take her all that seriously. And so she is spending a lot of her time doing embroidery, hanging with Levin, um, and, and not doing a great deal overall. She's kind of overwhelmed by the fact that suddenly she's gone from a life where she was expected to be so many things to now this is the part of her life where she's in control for the first time, sort of, sort of in control. Uh, as it notes, it, we, when she was younger and if she wanted cabbage and kvass or some candies, she couldn't just ask for that, which, what a life. You can't even ask for cabbage. That's... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but now she can. She can have as many pounds of cabbage or kvass or um, candies as she wants, and it's it's weird for her. Levin, on the other hand, is trying to get back into his work, but he, he <laughs> can't. He's trying to write, but of course, whenever he's writing, Kitty's sitting there with him, and he happens to notice that she's there, and she watches him, and he watches her, and then they start cuddling, which, yeah, that's nice. It, 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 but nothing really gets done, and, and Levin has a lot of feelings about this because, of course, he does. And so he's he's trying to intellectualize this three months of getting very little done. And he thinks, really, it's it's not Kitty's fault exactly, but it's her education which has prepared her to do nothing. So it's, it's really something that <laughs> I'll have to re-educate her that, you know, we need to be hardworking, et cetera, et cetera. Repeat ad hominem or repeat ad nauseum for 10 pages. At the very end, Tolstoy somewhat undercuts this by um, noting that Kitty, contrary to Levin's belief that she just didn't want to do anything. Uh, she actually knew very well that in the future she was going to be expected to do quite a lot, having children, raising them, becoming kind of the mistress of the house, and and, and knowing that that was going to be a lot of work, just decided to take these first couple of months having fun because it's, it's conceivably something she will not have the opportunity to do for a long time coming. This happiness is interrupted by news of uh, Levin's brother, Nikolai is is dying. We already knew that he was dying, but now he's like on death's door. He's reconciled with his wife, Maria, and, and Maria is is writes the letter to Levin begging him to come. Uh, Levin obviously decides, I've got to go right away, and Kitty says, hey, I'll join you. Levin says no, and when she persists in asking, why can't I come see, help you help your dying brother, he gets very angry and they fight. I didn't entirely understand his his understanding, but I think... A lot of it is not, maybe it's not entirely meant to be understood, as he notes later on, he's he's not exactly being reasonable in this at this point in time, but eventually Kitty convinces him to let her come, and they go and see his dying brother, and this whole time Levin's just a it's mess. Because, um, and Kitty <clears throat> contra oh. It's because in this time period, it wouldn't be proper for somebody from the nobility to be in the company of someone who's a former prostitute. Ah, there we go. I, yeah, it's not that exciting of a an explanation, I guess. It's a boring social thing, but that's mostly what it is. Yeah, I guess it, it does uh, kind of pull back some of as much as Levin does not like. Well, I mean, he it's it, it is reflects interestingly on Levin's relationship to the idea of nobility mm -hmm. and what exactly that means in the ways that he kind of denies that, embraces it, and then also unquestioningly um, lives by some of its yeah. tenets. But 
contrary to Levin's expectations, Kitty actually is is great at helping people who are dying, uh, perhaps because of her time in Germany when she learned to, to help people. And, and she helps kind of ease Nikolai's passing, although he just keeps persisting. Every time they think he's going to die, he ends up living and is, is quite angry that he's alive and he's they're not getting the doctors he wants. Before finally, after many anguished days, he, to the extent that they're all really feeling the mental strain of this, he finally passes. Uh, as he passes, Levin finds out from the doctor who is, who's, because he's noticed some strain on her, they, they found out that she is pregnant. Woo! Woo! <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty pretty action-packed couple of days, gotta say. Pretty action-packed couple of days, yeah. And you might think, wow, that, that was an action-packed part. No, we're not even close to done yet. <laughs> Spin his tail, Cameron. No, there's so much more. Yeah, so we, after this, we rejoin Alexei Alexeyevich, who is now, although he had his kind of moment of apotheosis, as we talked about last episode, feels terrible. <laughs> He's emasculated in society. He doesn't realize it yet, but his career is basically over. People don't respect him anymore. And Countess Ivanovna, uh, who uh, I don't know if we've mentioned her before, but now she's coming in to... She sweeps in to take care of his life, and it turns out she's not that good at it, but she's trying her best. Um, and the thing is that she's been following a new trend of Christianity, which is, I don't exactly know how to describe it, not altogether different from how I think modern evangelical Christianity <laughs> understands itself, but, which is a very loaded way of describing it. But she's very into like the, the living word, and we as Christians are sinless, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that is important to bring up, because that's an attitude she imparts upon to Alexei, who up to this point was religious but it wasn't something that impacted his day-to-day but now that he's found a new religious fervor everything he does from waking up to signing documents is something he does for jesus so he's, he's he becomes kind of a born again born again christian yeah this is really like the the, the beginning of the end for Gretchen, unfortunately <laughs> if you had sympathy at all for yeah. him at the beginning of the book i think by the end through his acquaintance if you will uh, with Countess Ivanovna starts to really he he ends up being something to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which we see because as he when Anna returns to Petersburg and this is skipping over many sections of of time of of Alexei spending time with his son, which I will note happens, and I don't think we need to know much more about it than that. It's really just him chastising his son for not learning things properly. <laughs> idiot <laughs> <laughs> honestly this poor kid yeah as as tolstoy notes he's, he's quite a, he's quite a bright kid in fact but every time he can't learn something it's taken as as resistance to learning rather than just simply <laughs> him struggling to grasp something by his father which rough <laughs> sorry bud but when anna returns to petersburg and uh writes to not uh alexi but ivanovna to ask her to if she can see her son Ivanovna takes the letter to Alexei and he's like, well, you know, I, I, who am I to deny her? Yeah, let's tell her. Yeah, we, she can she can see Seryozha. And Ivanovna is like, this cannot be. She's treating you so cruelly, Alexei Alexievich. You can't let her come in. And she convinces him that it would actually be morally wrong for Alexei to let Anna see Seryozha. So they send her a letter denying her access. Upon receiving this letter, Anna says, uh, this will not be, and she goes to see her son anyway. And she and Suryoja hang out, and Suryoja still loves his mother, and he's excited to see her, and she's just overjoyed to see him. But it's it's fleeting, it's temporary. And all the servants, although they feel a sense of obligation to Anna, and they, of course, just let her in and help her see her son, when Alexei comes to see her, they do all their they do their best to make sure that Alexei and Anna don't sue each other. So this is going to be important because this kind of heralds what exactly Vronsky and Anna's life is going to be continuing because Vronsky is here in Petersburg to get relations back. He goes to see his family. He's expecting them to accept Anna in as, as their own because he intends to marry her once Corinne divorces her. And what he finds is that his family doesn't really accept Anna. His oldest brother kind of does. His mother doesn't. His sister-in-law can't associate with Anna and he is just he's getting pissed off because no one's willing to openly associate with Anna because he's got kind of a tainted reputation and so he begins to ignore the people he used to, to know and Anna is getting frustrated because Vronsky's always out and she doesn't have anything to do and Vronsky's remain connection to anything really at this point so she says hey I'm gonna go to the theater and so she finds some friends who are willing to associate with her and she goes to the theater despite Vronsky's objections and while there she's just expecting to have a good time but 
people in the boxes around her are mean and rude and they don't even associate with her and they rebuff any attempt for her to even talk to them and Anna understandably leaves the theater in in tears more or less although of course she doesn't let people see that and when Vronsky returns home because obviously he couldn't associate with her so he had to go to the theater separately she is mad at him for letting her go and, and kind of unloads on him and accuses her, him of not really loving her and he, he says no no I they I do and he in his heart he kind of knows that he's he doesn't exactly it doesn't exactly say that he's lying but he in his heart it says he reproaches her for acting this way and they kind of make up and then leave to go to the Vronsky summer estate this is part five and wow that was a very brief description of all these things happening this this all I'm shocked this all fit into like 120 pages yep. Because Tolstoy spent 120 pages doing far less yes. than this and and not really losing many, much detail. We spent so much time with these characters, their personalities, their thoughts, their emotions, and still so much happens. And still so much left to happen. <laughs> yeah. So, Ooh. obviously there's a lot to talk about here. There is. You want to talk about honeymooning? Let's talk about honeymooning. I got, I got some a little bit of thought on honeymooning here. This kind of seems like the probably the clearest um, parallel between the storylines. Now that you really have Levin and Kitty together, you kind of can really compare and contrast better, I guess. Because mm. I think that's kind of what Tolstoy is setting up for most of this. And this is kind of one where you get them actually going on parallel planes for a, almost an entire part. They're both doing a kind of honeymoon if you will uh though in very different circumstances and i think that the vronsky italy thing is something that's not really talked about i don't think it's ever in any adaptations because it's just like it's not really that important to the story but it, it it's got some it's got some tolstoyan wisdom if you'll allow <laughs> um, the the painting i i think it's it's interesting because i'll as well say about the painting mm. And I don't really know how important it is to the actual functionality of the story, but it is important kind of understanding Tolstoy more broadly. And then, um, you know, I'm sure this will, I'll, I'll come back to this. I'm sure I'm forgetting something and I'll come back to it later. But so the art, Vronsky is really lamenting as he's meeting some of the people abroad about the like new kind of intellectuals that are sort of coming up in Russian society, which are these kind of intellectuals that aren't really like well educated or whatever, but they are like talented. And that's how he feels about the the artists that he meets with and ends up spending time with and ends up commissioning him to paint a portrait of Anna. And I'm trying to try to formulate what I'm trying to say here, but like Vronsky is not an artist. Vronsky does not have inspiration to draw art. This is why when Vronsky goes to draw a portrait of Anna it sucks and he doesn't like it. It's not really, it doesn't really suck. It's not a bad portrait. Technically, it might be a good portrait, but it's lacking the sort of inspiration that this other artist just innately has. And despite the fact that Vronsky is just dropping absolute stacks on art instructor, like a master to teach him, he's not really coming up with anything good or worth doing. And I, I think that there's just kind of like hints towards a sort of falsity, perhaps, in the way that Vronsky conducts himself or in the situations that he's placed in. There's something that is not inspiring him or not allowing him to be inspired or he innately lacks this and can never have this. I don't know exactly what Tolstoy is trying to say, but I think that that's, that's an important thing uh, that is kind of overlooked because you're just like all right whatever Vronsky doing art whatever he's not that good yada 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 <laughs> <laughs> I wonder and I'm, I'm interested to hear your take on this I wonder if in some way it's also kind of tangentially a shot at society which of course Tolstoy loves to take the piss out of um, since Vronsky's friend is talking about an article he's writing at one point and he goes on and on about how to the point of, that you make about the people who are rising up through society not because they're because they're well-educated, but because they're talented. At one point, his friend laments that the, the new generation, you know, when, when we had older people who were, said they were free thinkers, they learned the old masters and all the old, you know, the Greeks and all the important philosophies, and then they went on to build their philosophies from that. These new thinkers and these new artists, they don't learn the old masters. They don't read the old art. 
or read the old texts, look at the old art, they want to create something new. They're not really free thinkers. How can you think freely if you don't know what to think about? And Vronsky kind of agrees that I wonder if paralleling this artist who is the exact kind of person that Vronsky's friend is talking about against Vronsky, who is, for all the faults of the artist, he is someone who's genuinely good at what he does and creates things that move people rather than Vronsky, who like the best that is said of his work is just that people kind of you know, politely say, oh, yeah, it's good. It's 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 technically proficient. If that kind of is, is sort of a contrast where no matter how much people want to believe that you can buy your way in or have like the right thoughts by conforming to what's kind of expected of you, you can't really produce that kind of meaningful work unless that's something that it itself has meaning to you rather than just being a mechanical output of something that's expected of you. Yeah, well, it is uh, definitely, well, I mean, obviously a shot at society because what are you going to do? Be Tolstoy and write a book and not take a shot at society? I don't think so. <laughs> but it's also even more than that. It's actually a comparison to Levin because Levin has been doing the exact same thing throughout the entire book, but with literature and farming theory. And these are two very diverse things. Clearly, you might be thinking like, oh, okay, you don't really need to be inspired or anything to write a book about farming practices and whatnot. But it's deeper <laughs> than that. It's not just a book about farming practices. It's not just painting a picture. It is some sort of building block of life that allows certain people to... That just certain people have this better perception of how life works. They're able to kind of see through the superficiality and that, I think, is why Tolstoy doesn't really believe that you can just read a bunch of old stuff and from there you'll be able to deduce your way logically into some brilliant conclusion. <laughs> I don't think he's saying you you don't need to practice or work with like a, a skilled master if you're like an artist or something. But, you know, some people, especially for writers, like you can just be a good writer without really having ever practiced it, I think. <laughs> so there's there's definitely some of that and there's... Again, that comparison to Levin. And we'll put a pin in that and see how that plays out over the next couple parts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's how the three months of the quote unquote honeymoon for Vronsky and Anna goes. Now we have, on the other hand, the three month actual honeymoon, the official honeymoon of Levin and Kitty. I think Tolstoy wants this to be a good thing. It's tainted mm. with Tolstoy, unfortunately. <laughs> I, <laughs> I think, but. This kind of seems like the, um, well, clearly it is the antithesis of the Anna Vronsky adventure. It's a the original staycation, if you will. And <laughs> I, th I think what Tolstoy wants is to show that the fighting is good. Like this sort of, not marital trouble, but just the, the adjustment period is, is is very necessary. There's no way to prepare for it. It's not, you know, it's, there's a very high point at the at the marriage ceremony that just comes from the aesthetic and the energy of something so positive uh, to then go into the mundane everyday tasks of cooking, cleaning, setting the table. Of course, these are things that Levin doesn't really do. So, you know, I don't <laughs> say why is he complaining? Uh, but yeah, just these sort of like mundane tasks they need to adjust to each other. And you could argue that well, Vronsky and Anna never really get that time while they're abroad. It's kind of a, a postponement of that return to the everyday life. Though, I mean, on the contrary, you could also argue that, you know, if you're Anna and you're completely shunned from society, why would you go back? And, you know, <laughs> I can agree with you there. Like, <laughs> it's not great. But I do think Tolstoy originally when he wrote this, he wanted to show that that was a, like a false way of living. Yeah. And that that like that is not what you should aspire to. You should aspire to not taking a honeymoon and fighting when you're getting down to the everyday uh, tasks as opposed to kind of postponing and kind of living outside of reality in a way which is kind of what they do in their emigre bubble <laughs> i think that is an interesting point because right before the wedding levin has kind of a stag party with some some buds some pals um some guys he barely knows just some bros <laughs> they're technically his friends but he's not really that close to them and they spend the whole time basically clapping on clapping him on the back and saying goodbye to your freedom everything is going to suck from now on uh, your, your wife's not going to let you do anything fun like hunting bears. Yeah, good luck ever having fun hunting bears again. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, I wish I could say that was just a joke, but that's actually the example they use. Uh, they they try to t- they try to tempt him into, hey, come on, why do you even care about wedding preparations? We can go hunt a bear like right now, <laughs> as every good bachelor party should. <laughs> every good, absolutely. Um, and I think in his own way, Tolstoy is trying to address that kind of belief, which is so pervasive. Of course, all the commentary from the the bystanders in the church, so much of it from the men, is like. Oh, he doesn't know yet, but everything is going to suck from now on. Um, <laughs> and I think in his own way, Tolstoy is trying to push back on that when he's trying to portray a relationship, which is relatively realistic, considering, again, that these are two relative strangers who are now suddenly cohabitating 24 hours a day. <laughs> so he's not trying to come out here and say everything is going to be perfect. Obviously, it's not going to be. But this kind of period is good because it allows them to figure out who they are in relation to each other. In fact, as as Levin notes, that both he and Kitty, looking back at this period, were were very embarrassed of the way they acted. But of course, that thought from Levin implies to the reader that they've they've moved past this. That this was like a, a a stage that they both learned from and they move on from. Which I think is him in his own way trying to address that idea that like after you get married, everything sucks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, will also not take anything away from Tolstoy, but well, I hope you'd be able to write this realistically since he's literally drawing inspiration from his own life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it is kind of funny. And we've mentioned previously the interesting ways he sometimes characterizes people where where he will suddenly step outside someone's perspective after taking mm-hmm. it for, for so long. And in this entire section, it's from Levin's perspective. And, and so many of the things that Kitty does are so baffling to him. The day-to-day of how a room is decorated does not matter to him at all, but Kitty really cares about it. She's spending all day trying to decorate rooms and get things ready, and she cares about the proper placemats, and we need to make the window look like this, and we need to have the furniture this way in the house. And he, he's at first disappointed in that because it's so pedestrian to him. It's so, like, why would you care? But he kind of comes around to, like, oh, okay, I guess it's fine. I guess it's not that bad. Going back to the earlier point about him misunderstanding Kitty's kind of doing nothing, uh, um, he thinks it's oh this is bad education her part that this is what she expects when the reality is is that she's just taking her time before she realizes things are going to get harder i think he indirectly at one point uh the way he phrases that is that um uh he knew not that she was instinctively aware of this this being that she's going to have to work harder in the future and preparing herself for this terrible this time of terrible toil did not reproach herself for the carefree moments of happiness in her love that she enjoyed now while gaily building her nest for the future and it kind of recasts all of her light, all of her actions in a different light that she understands herself as building a home in this place. And I think it's kind of interesting that Tolstoy is letting, is totally willing to let, I mean, it, it makes sense. He's willing to let Levin misunderstand her because they don't fully know each other yet, as they mentioned many times. And so she is someone who's still somewhat alien to him. And I think it's really cool that we're able to have such misunderstanding that doesn't get resolved because that's sometimes when two people don't understand each other, these kind of things don't get resolved, or at least they don't get resolved all at once. This is probably one of my favorite parts of Anna Karenina, just this chapter in general. Perhaps because there's a lot going on, but I just find it really interesting. Characterization-wise, comparison-wise, 10 out of 10, enjoyable. 10 out of 10, maybe not honeymoon, but 10 out of 10 content for other people to watch in a honeymoon. Yeah, you know, getting to judge others, it's good. (laughs) It's good. Yeah, I I think I totally agree with you. I think that's really, it's really interesting to compare the, you know, the three months they both have in this period. Wow, there's still so much, that other thing, there's so many other things that happen. So Nikolai's death is the way that Tolstoy writes the death scene is not like you would expect him to write the death scene or like you would expect a writer to write a death scene, which is linearly. No, Tolstoy's not <laughs> going to give you that. He's going to give you what a death scene I think would probably be. Well, in my experience, yeah, you don't arrive, say goodbye, the person parts and then you're on your way. No, <laughs> Tolstoy gives you this ruling scene where really everybody is waiting for him to die they're like oh my gosh we've been here forever we keep thinking he's gonna die and then he won't and then he starts getting better and that's when he dies (laughs) i think it's even funnier because not funnier it's not really funny but i kind of got that same feeling from this that tolstoy is kind of trying to deny you trying to deny you that that clear like oh he takes his he takes his oath um he he repents and then he dies no he he 
or Penn says Kitty wants him to, and then he doesn't die. Then he admits to Levin that he was just doing that to get people off his back. And he's like, the only thing I really trust in is this iodine. He goes back to huffing it. And then, like you said, he just keeps not dying. And they're so emotionally drained by this. And the chapter in which he dies is called, it's chapter 20. And then underneath that, it says in, in big, bold letters, death, which no other chapter has a subtitle like this. But he he does die in this chapter. But this is one of the longer chapters in this entire book. Um, and there's so many moments in this where you think he's going to die. And I think Tolstoy is kind of teasing you almost. I don't know if he intends it to be funny, yeah. but he's dangling it in front of you. Even from the very moment of the subtitle of this chapter to every moment, it seems like this would be a very picturesque. This would be a very cinematic literary way to die, wouldn't it? But of course, that's not how people die. So Yeah, I think that's uh, I think part of the reason that people can get frustrated maybe with Tolstoy and the length of the work is especially as, as a Western reader, if you're not used to reading long Russian novels, you're used to having like a three to 500 page, even 500 pages is kind of long because uh, you're just really used to and conditioned to like certain things happening in certain ways. And Tolstoy does not give you that whatsoever. <laughs> no. It is technically linear in the way the novel is kind of sort of moving. So it moves in that way. But the actual scenes themselves and the composition of the scenes are, like you said, he kind of dangles it in front of you. Like, yeah, you'd like if I would end it here, wouldn't you? <laughs> so it all the characters involved in the scene, too. <laughs> Literally. Yeah, I think it's uh, I, I don't really know exactly what it says, but it is interesting just to note that Kitty is the only one who knows what to do in this situation. Mm -hmm. Levin is so worried about the relation with between her and uh, Nikolai's wife, girlfriend, the, the the former prostitute who he's living with. That is, yeah. So I don't know. I can't remember what the their official. I think they're married, then separated, then they get back together. Okay. Even so, he is still bound by these social restraints that he doesn't really want to be bound by, and yet he is. And Kitty really does not. She's not. She's the only one that's just good at doing this kind of stuff. And I, you would probably say that that is partially because of her family, just coming from an old aristocratic family with a strong family structure, probably one of the few mm. ones in, in the book. That's just like, I mean, just like textbook family. That's her family. And I guess as a result of that, you know how to do certain housekeeping things. Yeah. Well, she also is. She also had spent time learning at the. Um, I think even she directly mentions that she kind of learned when she was at the spa in Germany. Mm -hmm. To oh, some, the spa. <laughs> oh, the spa. <laughs> oh, yeah. And she doesn't invite. What's her name? I don't. Oh, um, uh, um, um, um. Varenka. She doesn't invite Varenka to her wedding. Oh, yeah. That's that's just a personal disappointment to me. But uh, who am I to say <laughs> to tell Tolstoy how we should have written this? But it's a pretty big snub <laughs> if you ask me. Out of all in the in the literary canon of world literature. <laughs> Um, but I wonder if, to some degree, knowing, uh, I don't I don't think this is, ex this is obviously a long way off from the Kreutzer Sonata, but this is towards his spiritual crisis, so I think he's probably coming around to the views of women, which he expresses, and what is to be done, but I wonder if, to some degree, this is him trying to hold Kitty up of, like, the, he kind of, at some point, he makes kind of an ironical sort of comment where he says, you know, of course, Kitty knew what to do, and, like, in her womanly heart, and that's the phrasing that's used in this book, that's not my edition, um, she knew instantly how to take care of the situation. So she takes control and sends for the doctor and cleans the place up and, you know, knows exactly what to do to make this dying man who instantly kind of falls in love with her as a sister-in-law feel better-ish until he gets way worse. Yeah, Levin has a very condescending attitude, even as she is the only one who does anything <laughs> productive as he's kind of just brooding uh, the whole time he's there waiting for his brother to die. <laughs> I, I gotta say, this is kind of an interesting... Kind of, I don't know if this was intentionally something Tolstoy meant to add, but there are many characters who are often our point of view characters who are not not very effective, and there are always people in the background who are kind of supporting them, even though they don't really acknowledge that. Like Dolly, when she goes abroad, or when she goes to the, the summer house, the servant she takes with them basically fixes everything <laughs> in three days that Steva couldn't, you know, couldn't take weeks to fix. And even by the time Levin gets there, she's taking care of everything important. And here, although Levin is the one who's supposed to be 
the brother taking care of his brother. A kitty comes in and takes care of it all for him. Of course, later, uh, Countess uh, Ivanovna, uh, even though she's trying to get all of Alexei's affairs and orders, it's really his like house servant who has to alter all of her orders to make it actually feasible and work day to day. It's just an interesting constant that I've noticed. Yeah, I mean, I th- definitely just the critique of the aristocracy. You're, you're approaching this period of stagnation, mm-hmm. if you will, this 1800 stagnation by this point. I would imagine you're starting to feel it. And so, yeah, I mean, why do you think society's stagnating? <laughs> well, partially, according to Tolstoy, it's because nobody who has any power could actually do anything. <laughs> and secondarily, it's all the, the attitudes of the people. I mean, he got this whole this whole part is just him taking the piss out of many different things that annoy him, which, of course, is always Tolstoy's writing to some degree. But it's pretty strong in this one, given how once, uh, you know, Countess Ivanov, Ivanovna, her new Christianity... Uh, he spends many pages making fun of how shallow it is and the moment that Alexei or Karenin takes it on in his primary mode of life, there's always snide commentary that's made about his actions, which he attributes to that. And the whole part with Karenin, you can instantly, you can instantly get Tolstoy's, <laughs> um, how Tolstoy wants you to view Karenin in that part the moment he makes that transition. Mm-hmm. Partially under the new religion, partially under Countess Ivanovna's influence. I think I've mentioned this before just Tolstoy doesn't really like anything like totalizing mm-hmm. for instance Christianity would be an example of some sort of moral system that he would probably view as totalizing he really it's not that he doesn't want to believe he really wants to believe but in kind of his own way yeah that's a, that's a subject <laughs> for another time <laughs> you probably do a whole whole episode on Tolstoy and religion <laughs> more than one in fact it's very complicated but yeah. Sorry, oh, I just want to read this line. <clears throat> Alexei Alexandrovich, like Lydia Ivanovna and others who shared their views, was completely devoid of that depth of imaginative faculty, that spiritual faculty in virtue of which the conception of evoked by the imagination became so vivid that they demand being brought into harmony with other, confe- other conceptions and with actual fact. He saw nothing impossible and inconceivable in the idea that death, though existing for unbelievers, did not exist for him. And that he, as he was possessed of the most perfect faith, of the measure of which he himself was the judge, therefore there was no sin in his soul, and he was experiencing complete salvation here on earth. It kind of goes in on there, doesn't it? (laughs) Few sentences have I read with more venom in them in this book. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And he only becomes worse as the book goes on. Starting to understand why uh, this man was (laughs) excommunicated from the Orthodox Church. (laughs) Um. Yeah. Did you have anything that you thought about Anna's exclusion from society? I, I, I honestly didn't. I, as I went through it, it was, I, it felt like a, not that it wasn't a, a, an interesting part of the book. It is. It's an interesting development, but it feels more like one of those scenes, which is more a feature of plot and development than it's Tolstoy trying to expound an idea or create parallels. Yeah. I mean, you could talk about ideas of like Anna becoming a spectacle. There are things that you could, you could talk about. I personally, this is why I think the Anna plotline always gets adapted into film is just because it's it, it's just plot. Most of it is very easy to adapt because it's not that deep. It's not not deep, but at the same time, it's kind of on its own. I, I don't know what more there is to say other than, yeah, of course, this happened as she went back to uh, she went back to the theater. And of course, it was incredibly upsetting. But it is at the end of the day, the expected outcome of what this was. Which they both were denying up until this point, kind of like Nikolai, the dying man, right. who who believed for a little while that maybe he wasn't actually dying and there was hope. Uh, they they continue to believe that they can that society will reintegrate them. Most interesting, I think, is Anna visiting her son all of a sudden. Since when has she done anything with any of her kids? <laughs> she had another kid that didn't get mentioned for like a hundred pages. <laughs> no idea where kid is now once she comes back to petersburg yeah like this is it's kind of interesting when anna goes to see her son it's on his birthday and um she goes back and he's obviously excited to see her but at, at, at a certain point his uh, suryosha's nurse comes in and this is notable because she doesn't actually work for Karenin anymore but she still comes to see him on his birthday and bring him things and obviously Suryosha is mostly excited to see his mother, but I think that's interesting. This is not also that surprising if you've ever studied any society which has had a you know a class of, of servants or slaves raise their kids that you know in those ways those those people who are not never forefronted are the real 
kind of parents of these children, you know, and she doesn't want work for this employer anymore, but she's still coming just to see the kid she probably raised on his mm-hmm. birthday and she doesn't even get a name. Nope. Yeah. That's a question for, that's a question that can linger. Is Anna a good mother? <laughs> Time will tell. <laughs> well, first we're going to have to see her in a parenting situation. So that's... The, the most parenting time we've gotten is, is Alexei being, or uh, Karenin being a dick to his kid for 10 pages straight, so. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is, this is such a, this is such a thick part. Even after we've talked about this for an hour, we, we could probably keep going for like multiple episodes, just talking through all the things you could take away from this or focus in on. And oh, there's just, there's so much. This is such an interesting part. Maybe we'll come back next summer. We'll do the supplementary <laughs> summer of Anna Krishna. <laughs> What's what's another S? What's an S author? Uh, <laughs> Supplementary Solzhenitsyn. Ooh, no, thank you. Well, before we totally wrap up, Cameron, on a scale from one to Yeltsin, how drunk are you this evening? I am. I've been so consumed with discussing all the themes. I've honestly, actually, I entirely forgot my drink. Oh no! So I'm I'm at a zero by. By by pure fact that it has been sitting on my desk untouched for the last hour. Mm-hmm. How about you? I, I probably made it up to to a four and then tapered off to a two as I started talking more. <laughs> <laughs> I was drinking and listening to your summary and enjoying yeah. it. You had a good thirty minutes to pound to pound your I IPA. Did. <laughs> I did. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Matt, what are you reading in our next episode? All right. Well, we got a fun format change coming up. We are going to be switching to a twice-monthly format. If you want more information about that, there is a separate episode that has also come out today that is very quick and will give a little bit more explanation. But we are going to be reading next Anna Karenina, part six. We're going to be finishing up the summer of Anna Karenina before we move to other stuff. So if you want more information about that, uh, it's wherever you also got this podcast. And if you're a patron... We have a little bit more information on Patreon as well. Before we let you go, we want to, as always, extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. Jeff, Janice, Anne, Emily, Jesse, Madeline, Alex, Daniel, Irini, Paige, Darren, Larkin, Lou, Brandon, Gary, Daniel, Jack, Alex, and Roland. Podcasting isn't free. And grad school, I don't know if my grad school listens to this, but they should pay us more because it does not pay very well. So if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at patreon.com slash tipsy Tolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon. Mm-hmm.